Hey everybody, welcome back to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're back for another interview. I'd like to let you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of my new co-sponsor, Messina Covers. David and Erica design and deliver both high-quality customer service and products, both standard and custom. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And Messina is spelled M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S. They offer their support through Patreon. Patreon is a funding platform where you can offer your financial support to this podcast, and your help will go towards hosting, production, and marketing fees. There are several tiers of support offered, and you can check out how you'd like to support this podcast at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also offer support by providing comments and a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive news regarding interviews, new guests, access to Studio HFL merchandise, please subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.powellmusic.net and click on the subscribe to newsletter link. And of course, Powell Music P-O-W-E-L-L-M-U-S-I-C dot net. And now, on with the interview. I can pretend I'm asking you that again. You don't have to pause for that. But of course, uh, you know, we, this is this is the kind of magic of recording, live recording. Um, okay. Yeah, well, you got it right. I mean, so everybody, I just asked Steve Patrick, you know, what HFL is. And you got it right. Now, I have to tell you, there's some out there who had no clue. Um, and they're off my Christmas list. So... We've had people guess uh, uh, handle frack and pole, and you know some other some other some other thing. So, um, no, yeah. I actually I remember that from college. Yeah, from college days. Yeah, for sure. So uh, now you don't know me from Adam, but I've known your name for quite a long time because we have a common friend up here in Indianapolis, and that's Brian Tabor. Oh, Brian. Yeah, He's wonderful. He's a great friend. Yeah, I I, worked... have, I have not spoken to him or or talked to him in years though. Well, Dude. he speaks very highly of you, and I I worked with Brian for a long time uh, at a church. I was his assistant, and uh, you know he uh, he tried to play trumpet from time to time, but you know his his true strengths are at the piano and singing. <clears throat> but you know, so that's how I learned about your name, and of course, that was a long time ago, and then. Good grief, man. Uh, your name just keeps popping up. And then you just sent me this resume. I'm looking through this resume. Is there anybody? I think it would have been easier if you had listed the people you haven't played with. Well, it, you know, people tend to ask me specific questions about who I've played with and what I've done. And the reason I sent that is because I always blink. I, I just, I'm I'm telling you, when you're, when you're first trying to make a living and you're, you're, doing gigs and you're doing a, you get called for a session and it's like the biggest most important thing in the world to you and you're doing these things you keep track of it i mean i think i kept track of everything i did for a couple of years like and just wrote it all down and i if you know if it would come out i'd try to go find it or get a copy of it or maybe buy it or something like that and you know it was exciting and and it's not that it that wears off it's always exciting to be part of somebody's project but what happens is that, you know, life just happens and your car breaks down and you have to get your kids someplace and you, you know, and, and you get so busy with all the other things of life that you're, you just, 
you stop paying attention. And so my close friends now will be like, hey, what are you doing today? I'm like, oh, I'm going to play a session. They're like, what are you playing on? I'm like, I don't know. So, and even sometimes when you when I finish, they'll be like, what did you play on today? I'm like, I played on a, some artist album. And they're like, could you play with it? I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and it's because, you know, the artist many times is not there. And, um, you know, it's all, it's not always a huge, you know, big name artist either. It's sometimes it's somebody's first project or something. And so um, I'm pretty terrible at that. And I have friends that are great at it. Like they'll, they'll tell you what they did, you know, three months ago or a year and a half ago. And they, they're just, they just have memories that think that way, but it's never been my forte. Either. I think it's pretty cool though, you know, to, to, to go back and, and uh, figure that out even as much as you can. But it's, it's a pretty cool legacy, uh, you know, to, to look back and think, wow, those, there's some pretty impressive things on there. Um, and, you know, when it comes to impressing people, I think, you know, the, the people that might be the least impressed are your family, right? <laughs> it's like, that's, yeah, that's, so what? It's so funny that you say that is because, you know, I'm, I have three kids and, um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll go do something that is really cool, and I'll come home and I'll be like, um, like I remember when I I played, you know, I recorded for Matchbox Twenty back in the, in a time period where they were a really big deal. This is probably I don't know, seventeen years ago or something. I can't remember. And uh, and actually, it's not been nearly that long. But it, it's but I came home and I'm talking to my kids and I'm like to them and, and they're like, who's that? So most everything – so I started actually writing down the resume, you know, kind of things to not only when people ask, but but really for my kids so that someday they'll look back and they'll say, you know, Dad was pretty cool. But, yeah, we'll see if that actually happens. But um, <laughs> You know, uh, uh, my wife and I went to hear a comedian recently. It was, it was Jim Brewer. Uh, you know, most people would remember him as uh, mm-hmm. Goat Boy. Uh, but he made yeah. a, a comment from the stage. He said, you know, you're out front, you're performing, and you could be a god to all these people in the audience. But then you get home and you have to drag the trash out. You know, it's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. so you're humbled, you know, I think, by, uh, you know, you do all these great things at work. And, yeah, you come home and everybody's a regular person uh, at that point. Yeah, so. exactly. So I'm curious. um you know, I knew you started out at IU, and uh, mm-hmm. you studied with some uh, exceptional names there. And uh, let's let's start there. Tell us a little bit about your experience at IU, and and if you're from Indiana in the first place, maybe that's a good place to start. I'm actually from the Chicago area, uh, about 50 miles northwest of Chicago, and uh, I went to IU basically because of of um, David Baker and because of Bill Adams. I, those names uh, I took from uh, I took private lessons from a guy named John Scott, who was a, a wonderful player in the Chicago area, and he was Vince Chiquitz's uh, AI at a certain point, or teaching assistant TA. <laughs> and um, basically, he uh, he said you need to go someplace where you're challenged and you know where you're a, a little fish in a big pond. And so I, I went there, and he was exactly right. You know, nobody noticed me. And um, I was actually, at that point, my chops weren't great um, because I had, I had had braces, and they'd straightened my teeth. 
and my range had gone down, my endurance had gone down, my sound was a little bit dull. So everything I was doing was geared towards how can I how can I get my chops happening? And so um, I, I was just focused on so much on chops that I missed so much about music for a while, uh, for over a year. Um, and I just kind of thought that, you know, Bill Adam would touch me with a magic wand and I'd be able to play like Charlie Davis or something like that. I mean, I, I really did. I just thought that's how it went. You know, you go to school, they unlock these doors and all of a sudden you can do this stuff. And, right. Well, there was, was already, a, not... there was already a history there. Right? He had, he had had so many great players come through his studio and, and head out to the West coast and beyond. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and when you first come in, you start hearing these stories and, and about all these players and the, and the history. And it's like, Oh, well, that'll happen to me. Of course, you know, at 17, why would you think anything otherwise? So, um, yeah, so I, I bumped into a guy named Mark Van Cleef, uh pretty early on, who could do a lot of things on the trumpet. Just he was pretty amazing physical player. What he could do, tonguing wise, range wise, endurance wise, sound wise, um, and I told him about the the braces. Cause I, I had had braces on the inside of my teeth, and then I had um, uh, I had a retainer at that point. Wait, 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 wait! Back and up, so, back up, on the inside of your teeth. Yes, because I was I was serious about playing trumpet. Oh my god! So gosh. in high school, so so I grew up. You know, my basically, I'll, I'll give you a quick overview before I even got to college. Is that I I started playing trumpet, playing along with Maynard Ferguson albums with a with a cornet, an old ambassador cornet, and I think there was an old three C, a, a New York ten and a half C, and a, a Besson five mouthpiece in there and so um i just i learned how to play by ear and my brother i was copying my brother because i thought he was the coolest thing in the world so he was older than me and he played trumpet so that's what i was doing and and i i everything was very natural and physically i had a good setup um and then i had a really great classical teacher and um so i would do everything that he said and then I'd play along with records, um, Doc Severson, Man Ferguson, and Chuck Mangione, different things like that, stuff that was laying around the house. And by the time I was in eighth grade, I had D's above double C. And I could play it, and I could do it on pretty much any equipment. It wasn't really equipment sensitive. So then I get braces in high school, and my range starts going down. Um, and then I get to college, meet Mark and Cleve, and he's like, well, you know, your teeth have a lot to do with your playing trumpet. Duh, it seems like a pretty smart thing, pretty pretty easy thing to think of. But um, so at any rate, I uh, I ended up bending my retainer. They they cut my retainer to to bend my front teeth back the way they were slightly, just the very front ones. <clears throat> and uh, that was kind of the journey back. But my equipment and mouthpieces never felt the same. I never had that natural leverage that I did at the beginning. And and so. Um, and, and how did you feel? You know, uh, psychologically, was that starting to wear on you at that point? Um, yeah, it, it was. Uh, when I didn't, when that magic wand didn't actually change anything with my playing, 
uh, it became pretty discouraging to see players around me that could, could do things that I couldn't. Um, <clears throat> I didn't know much about the industry. I didn't know what it took to be a player for a living. And so, um, I, again, I was naive in, in those ways. I was just kind of a kid that was taking the path of least resistance. I loved playing trumpet. I loved music. So that's the way I was going. And so I was enjoying you know, time at college and hanging out with people and doing stuff. But after a while, it did it did start bothering me, and I was practicing more and more, and I was taking it seriously. Um, so that's when I started diving into equipment, even back at that point, <clears throat> the mouthpieces, that type of thing. Well, that's not unusual for uh, any trumpet player. I mean, you know, I mean the the whole mouthpiece uh, journey, searching for that holy grail. Uh, yeah, but I was much. It seemed like I was much more mouthpiece and horn sensitive than most because um, I, I had pe- friends around me that could you know play up to a double C on a 3C and then you know the same thing with any other mouthpiece a small mouthpiece and the sound changed but they, they had the facility on anything and I did not so when did uh, when did things start to get straightened back out um, you know I, I kind of figured out some of the physical stuff uh, through college, the, the problem was that I never really got to the place where I, I, I had the musicality under my belt in different styles. Um, and so I had, I had spent time in jazz band and Latin band, but I never did like concert band. I never did marching band. I never did orchestra. I never did a small group or quintet. Um, and, and so I was lacking in those areas as far as experience, whereas when I was in high school, I had done all of that. And I, was, I would have designated myself more of a classical player background. I could play high notes and could play a little bit of jazz, you know, but very little. Um, so, the, I mean, my saving grace was, was my, you know, my ears that God gave me. Uh, I have perfect pitch. And so I, I would say, in fact, for the listeners that are trying to grab onto anything useful in this podcast, I would say that the thing that they should think of is um, your ears should guide everything. They should guide your musicality. They should guide how you approach exercises when you're playing trumpet, how you should, how should you know, everything that you do should be guided by your ears. Well, you know, it, I, I really appreciate that you say that because I'm, I've become a huge advocate of uh, sound before sight, you know, and mm-hmm. it's something that is part of the Suzuki program for, you know, strings and, and others. Uh, but, you know, you talk about the strength of your ear, but you just said that you learned everything by ear. You put those records on, right, mm-hmm. and you weren't focused on anything visual, right? It was right. all just tr- – it was learning. So perfect pitch or excellent relative pitch was – I mean, you you sharpened that right there. Well, and and people need to know that you can develop really great relative pitch. You know, you don't need to be born with perfect pitch. And in fact, sometimes it's a curse because if there's there's things around you, it'll pull you off your game because you know where you need to put it and you know where you want your chops to put that. And when that's not happening, you crack notes, you make mistakes because you're hearing it someplace and it's not going there because of your surroundings. Um, um, but yeah, uh, so that's kind of my journey uh, through college. I, I I ended up getting out, and 
I guess it, it gave me more time to grow up than anything, which I definitely needed. Um, and when I when I was finally out, um, I went on the road with with Dana Ferguson, and uh, again that was a that was another eye opening experience in that um, I was just surrounded by people that were way better than me. I mean, just flat out. I had high chops. I had a good sound. I had some other things going for me, but the the depth of musicality around me was superior to me. And so I continued to grow, and I grew very quickly. And I would say, again, it's because of my ears, because I was able to assimilate everything that I was hearing and then process it, and it made me better. And almost overnight, by just being around those types of players. Um, you know, Craig Johnson, Peter Olstead, those guys were on the road. Uh, and they and Mike Fawn on trombone, uh, Chip McNeil on saxophone, and they to hear those guys, you know, every night. And I wasn't even on a long tour; I was on a shortened tour, and it was it was life changing for me. You know, I I remember uh, hearing the Maynard Band in the early '80s. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just blown away, you know, de Blasio, Dennis de Blasio was in the, the reed section at that point. And mm-hmm. it was back yeah. when he had his, the bigger band. And, and I don't know when you were in it, you know, how, how big the horn section was, but, um, I was there in 90, 90 or 91, something like that. Yeah. Okay. So this was this big bop nouveau. Was that that era? It was big bop nouveau, not the first iteration, but kind yeah. of after some people yeah. had already gone through. Yeah. But you know, Maynard had a great job of surrounding himself with excellent musicians. You know, and and uh, mm-hmm. it's like Chuck Mangione, who you mentioned earlier. You know, he was Chuck was actually the very first live concert I ever went to in '79. Really? And of course, you know, Chris Vidala uh, was just a beast on uh, saxophone, and <laughs> the band he had around him. You know, Chuck was the weak link. Um, and I, you know, that's not news to anybody. I hope you know he's not going to hear this podcast, and you know and kill me for mm-hmm. saying that. But I mean, that's kind of the truth is, uh, and I think, you know, that's probably what a lot of band leaders want to do is surround themselves with, uh, uh, strong players. But, uh, that's something anyways, I, an aside, I appreciated that, uh, you know, everybody was good. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it, it's, it was the, the, the amount of musicality. I mean, I, <clears throat> I was definitely the least on the stage. I can tell you that with authority. And then I, um, I went, actually, I, I went and uh, continued to date the woman who became my wife. And then I went back to school, finished school. And then I went on the road with a Christian group called Truth. And I was out with Truth for a while. And that was an outstanding experience. And that, that took me to, uh, up until that point, I had played classical solos. And I had played in big band and salsa band but I'd never played pop music. So, and, and it is so radically different to play pop than big band. I mean, the whole approach, you'd think they're, you know, commercial is commercial, but you know, especially when you're younger, but it's, it couldn't be, it couldn't be any different. So, uh, I did that. And, uh, then I, I came back and finished school. And at that point I was married and, and then I went and then I moved to Nashville. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I had some friends here that introduced me to some people. And um, one one friend got me a, an audition with a contractor. And uh, the principal of Nashville Symphony, who, who 
does a lot of recording um, and is an unbelievable player. Came is that, is the, that uh, uh, still, is it Jeff? No. Uh, yes, it's, yes, it's Jeff Bailey. Yeah, Jeff Bailey, of course. Yeah. He's just phenomenal. I mean, his and his his ability to he's continued to evolve since I moved here in '94. He's he's come from just being a solid, great sound section player that could play all the classical stuff, but also you know play in different styles. To now, you know, if he needed to play lead in a big band, he could tear you know tear the paint off the back wall. <clears throat> so he's he's phenomenal, but. So he, he and uh, the contractor came and, and listened to me, and I think I played Charlie number two and uh, a section of Begin the Beginning from, from Doc's Tonight Show Band album. And I think I played a, a pop thing that I played on the road with Truth and uh, played part of the Brandenburg. On, on the piccolo. So I wanted to show them that I could do different things. <laughs> That's about as eclectic an audition as you can you can get, man. That's <laughs> <laughs> it, it really was looking back, and I was like, I don't know what to play. I'll just play all of these, you know, really hard things from everything, from every extreme that I can do. And fortunately, it went really well. And they said, okay, uh, we'll be calling you. And, you know, I'd get a call, you know, in a month. And then a month and a half later, I'd get another call. And it'd be for a two- or a three-hour session. It was just a little short block at a time. And um, as I'd go in there, um, I was always a sub. And the primary studio players at that time were George Tidwell, who was a fantastic musician and, and still is. A uh, fantastic musician. He's a, a great jazz player. Um, people probably don't know his name as much because he's, He's just been in the studio for decades. But, you know, when you're listening to TV or radio or anything, you're hearing George, you know, uh, over all through the you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and 2000s. Um, so that was George. So I'd sometimes have to come in for George. So that meant if there was something that was in George's bag of tricks, I had to be able to kind of copy that. And... So I, I had to think that way. When I came in for Jeff, I had to be able to step into his role. When I came in for Mike Haynes, who was who was kind of the the lead player for everything and the first trumpet player for for most recording at that time, um, I'd step into his role, and that's that's kind of what most people thought of me as was kind of the lead lead guy and I'm not guy. But I really spent more time playing second and third in the first 15 years in town than anything. And, and I was able to develop, you know, I played with wedding bands and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I worked on playing jazz because I hadn't done that in college because everybody thought of me as a lead player. So I, I didn't, you know, that's when, you know, I was on the general Jackson and, and these at the riverboat. So you played a bunch of Dixieland music and then you played dinner music. And so I became a functional jazz player. I wouldn't call myself a good, a great or even a, a good jazz player, but I'm, I'm very functional and I can play back to the ears telling your, your body and how to play, you know, so that it has to go back to your ears again, even then. So, you know, all this experience playing second and third, you know, even though you're a lead player, you know, you're describing really what kind of a, a real studio musician is, is you, you got to go in and wear whatever hat 
you have to mm-hmm. wear for that day. And, you know, whether it's pop or like the what's the Taylor Swift tune that's been making uh, the rounds on YouTube, you know. Uh, oh, the old uh, Shake It Off. Yeah, you know, okay. and uh, well, you, you hear, <laughs> I mean, you guys are all tearing it up, all of you, you know, and uh, right. You know, and so I'm. I guess where I'm headed with that is, uh, I think about orchestras, you know, and there's that utility guy, who's playing third on one piece, and then he moves up to play assistant on the next piece, and then he's off stage mm-hmm. on the next piece. You know, all of that's valuable, right? In in growing yourself as a musician, and I mean, you to be able to get that kind of experience it had to just be uh, a blast. I mean, were you having a great time? doing this is I that, was, is that the I, stupidest I, question I, I could ask but i mean were you having a great time well, no i mean it's a good question um I, I have to say that up until that point i'd always felt very comfortable playing live um and when i when i would go into the studio i was just terrified every single time because it's yeah the session playing is pretty frightening um it's it has components where you're just outside of your element so so easily. Um, I'm trying to think of situations. I think uh, back to um, a quote that I heard of Gary Grant of saying that you know studio playing is 90% sheer boredom and 10% sheer terror or something like that. And and for me it was probably you know 98% sheer terror and 2% you know not boredom. I mean, it, it it became that way over the years. And now I would say that our work has shifted somewhat and it's about 45% sheer terror. There's, even at this point, a, as long as you've been doing, even at this point, you, you, you feel that? Yes, because, because I continue to be out of my element. Um, I think people see clips of me on YouTube playing Shake It Off and Uptown Funk and these types of things or high note things on uh, CMA Christmas show or things like that. And they think that that's how I make my living. And I would say that's such a very small percentage of what I do. Uh, I end up playing C, C trumpet and E flat trumpet quite often. And, and that's, and I'm sitting next to guys that that's, that's their primary. That's where they feel at home you know, on C and E flat. And so it's sitting next to that is, is daunting because it's, it's just outside my element, but I have to do it because that's what the music is calling for. And you can't, you can't really compromise in the studio. You don't kind of get that sound. You have to have that sound. You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you've been doing this such a long time and and I know you're being uh, self-deprecating on that, but I mean, you know, obviously, I, I think a lot of it has to do because you uh, you have such high standards too, right? That's that's another thing. Yeah, is, the, the standards are set pretty high. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and not and, just and by you the don't, you don't get tons of chances either. I mean, in, in cer- certain sessions, you can feel a little bit more relaxed, and when you're doing an artist album or something like that, it's pretty it's pretty relaxed and laid back, and and that's fun. But when you have a full orchestra on the floor, um, and it's it's you know, like Star Wars video game or something like that. Um, that's intense. Right. That's and time really is, intense and time is money, right? Cause you know, they don't want to have to do take very much. Take, right. Very much. They don't, you know, we get to the, we get a stack, we get a pile of music and we're like, there's no way we're going to finish this. And, and we just continue chipping away and sure enough. And, and usually 
you know, even after multi multiple days of recording, we'll we'll end up with maybe ten minutes extra, or maybe go ten minutes over. So they're they're pretty good at figuring out how quickly we can move on this material. You know, we do a lot of the Hal um, Leonard stuff up here in Indy, and yeah, uh, it's uh, I I wouldn't say it's as uh, intense. Uh, as maybe a, a film recording uh, that you're doing in Nashville or LA or or wherever, but um, you know there's there's a still an expectation that you want to get it on the first take, and right. you know I I there are a lot of times I wish they would just red light it on the first take, um, uh-huh. just because I think if that's the expectation, man, we're going to get it done. <laughs> you know it's gonna it's gonna happen, but if you know that the first right. time through is a read, then it's like oh well you know there's room for room for a mistake but uh well a lot of times are uh, with brass player you know if you have great brass players in the room a lot of times your first take is the best take especially on 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 pieces that aren't necessarily extremely difficult but they just require everybody paying attention and playing in tune and and doing what's on the page yeah so uh, i mean it's it's all pretty varied and it's it's all exciting it's it's still fun but it's it's still a little bit nerve wracking, you know. You have to, you definitely have to. No matter what's going on in your life, you have to show up and be prepared and and do a good job and and um, day in and day out. Because you'd think, well, you're kind of in that position, but you know, nobody really has a secure job in the studio. Nobody, you know. <laughs> what you, they say, you're, you're basically your reputation your reputation is uh, based on your your most recent performance right i mean that's yeah that's where you leave it yeah that's exactly it yeah so i mean obviously you spend a uh, uh, huge amount of time in the studio but uh, you mentioned playing with the nashville symphony and uh, i see you teach at trebecca and other places and uh, are those how much of uh, your energy goes into those, and, and what do you really look forward to uh, with the teaching? Um, well, I, I don't teach at Trebek anymore. I've, I've taught with Trebek in the past several years. Um, Trebek, Belmont, Cumberland University, MTSU. I've, I've been an adjunct member of all of those schools, and I'm still currently – I have one student, one commercial student right now um, from Belmont. Um, but that, that's it for teaching, and then some people will, will try to get with me, and, and it's just difficult because of my schedule. But I, I try to do everything I can when, I, when I'm able to. Um, so that does not take up tons of my time just because I, I don't have time to do it. Sure. Uh, do you enjoy the teaching Symphony, aspect of things, though? Do you, When you get a chance to sit down with, uh, with a student, do you uh, – and what kind of student I'll, do you I'll really – I'll tell you what. This is um, – this is going to sound really bad, but I only like it when it's somebody that's sought me out because they really want to play well. I hate teaching kids that just picked up trumpet. I just don't have I don't have the temperament or the patience. I, I don't have anything. I don't have the skill set to do that. I feel like I've been beat up after a lesson, which is you know not the way you're supposed to feel. Now. A, a college kid or, or somebody that's, that's good, that's really striving to be good, I, I love teaching. That's the funny thing. So I'm really hot and cold with it. Um, 
Well, so, I don't think yeah, it's a bad thing. You know, I, I think that, you know, we find our strengths as teachers. And, you know, I, I don't enjoy teaching beginners. You know, I don't have that mindset, that patience uh, right. for that sort of thing. So, you know, but there are there are definitely people out there who, you know, thank goodness uh, they are blessed with the ability, uh, you know, to be able to connect with those, those kids and, and help them out. But, yeah. Uh, well, and it's <laughs> interesting there it's really interesting to see those people's personalities. They're such great. Usually those people are such great people to be around that have that temperament. Uh, <laughs> I'm not that person, <laughs> but as, as far as uh, symphony work, uh, that's just completely random. You know, I can go for months without a call and then I can do, you know, I could work with Chattanooga symphony and Nashville symphony three times in one month. And it just, it completely varies. So, um, but it's it's always fun because it, it's I enjoy doing different types of work and playing with different musicians, different because I'm always learning. I'm always picking something up. There's um there's just and and Nashville Symphony's brass section is fantastic. You know the the trumpets, trombones, French horns they're they're just marvelous. And and so so is the rest of the orchestra. And so every time I go in there, I'm learning. I'm hearing so many things that are are affecting me in such a positive way. Um, See that? Especially if we get to play classical. To, to hear you say that, positive. you know, I feel like uh, uh, we're kind of in the same boat because I, even at, at 53, you know, I still mm-hmm. feel like there's so much to learn and I am constantly looking for uh, not a trick, not a shortcut, but I'm looking for that next thing to really help improve my own playing, you know, and finding the thing that's going to keep me energized. And uh, right. there's an awful lot out there to do that. There's so many great players. Uh, access to YouTube, of course, is is great because you can listen and watch uh, your your favorite players. And uh, uh, well, and quite honestly, this podcast, you know, it's given me access to uh, you know a huge number of of people that I've admired for so long. You know, and and I've been learning so much even from from this. Uh, you know, I, I feel like a kid again. And you know, I don't know if you feel the same way, but to get to take out your trumpet uh, on a on a regular basis, uh, you know, a really regular basis, um, it's like, man, should we really tell people that this is work? You know, <laughs> I, I'm having yeah. too much fun. Well, my son says that all the time. He's like, well, you're not really actually going to work. You're going <laughs> to play trumpet. You know, and he loves yeah. playing guitar. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so I hear I hear that a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've played with, uh, I come down to Orchestra Kentucky uh, occasionally, and uh, Jeff Bailey and some of those guys have come up. Uh, we've done some things there. I've met Jeff, and, you know, he, what a great guy, first of all. I mean, yeah, he's a great player, but also really nice. Um, well, and his son is great, too, Preston Bailey. <clears throat> Why do I know that name? Is a musician, another musician? Uh, yeah, it's, his son plays trumpet. His name oh. is Preston, and he's a, he's a fantastic trumpet player. Wow. He, he works with us all the time. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of good people. So, Michael Arndt, uh, you know, I, and uh, uh-huh. uh, I don't know if you know Matt Murdoch. Uh, this I'll probably have to edit this out. This may bore people to death, but you know, Matt uh, was a friend of mine. I think he's teaching still at Trevecca. Um, yeah, he's. I think he's the main guy over there under under David Deal, who's over the whole school of music. But I think Matt has tons of responsibilities. I very rarely run into Matt, but. Yeah, he's he's a great guy when I when I talk to him. Yeah. So, um, 
Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, the live the live aspect of things. You know, you, you spend so much time in the studio, but if I guess we'll have to go back a little bit. Uh, I mean, you've done really a lot of the journeyman stuff with circuses and, uh, and cruise ships and that sort of thing. And, of course, you mentioned Maynard, but um, any any stories or any insights from time on the road or on the water? You know, not not really, and, and certainly not any that I can share on a podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean nothing, nothing too bad. But um, no, not I, I. I I've listened to clinics and, and interviews of all of these other trumpet players, and, and it's so so exciting to listen to all of their stories. And I'm like, man, I've got the most boring life. So, you know, because I don't, and and part of it's probably just keeping my nose clean and, and staying out of trouble. So I don't have too many stories that come to mind. Um, but just, and and it's probably because I've been so focused on the job at hand and so serious about doing a good job that, you know, when I'd go out on the cruise ship, I'd, I'd wake up, I'd warm up, I'd go to the gym. I'd come back, I'd, you know, I, I've, I've tried to stay pretty regimented because it, I need that for the, uh, for the consistency of playing. And I, that was, that started fairly early on. And, and those are things that were, that, that kept on going that direction because of, of relationships like, and friendships with like Jeff Bailey, who, who is, practices and, and works so hard at being the best at, at what he does. Um, so I've just picked up so much on that and, and then I'd read articles on, you know, how Adolf Herseth approached things and it's like, oh, that makes sense. And, and I try to do that. So I think when, uh, sometimes the stories, you don't have as many stories because you're, you're focused so much on what you're doing. That's, that's definitely the way it is with me. I, I can say that the diversity of, of what I've, what I do beats up my face a lot. And that's where uh, the mouthpiece company came out of. Um, because I found that one morning I'd be, I'd, I'd go play something during the day on Saturday, for instance, and then I'd go play a wedding ceremony. And then I'd go play a wedding reception. And then I'd drive home and it's three in the morning and now I have to be at a rehearsal at seven. So I'm going to have, you know, I've got three hours to sleep or something. And now I'm playing with, with classical players. And, and so this is where I really started figuring out mouthpieces and horn swaps because there was no way that I could, that I could physically do my job with as swollen as my chops were. So I had to start, start thinking through and, and I'm, I'm probably a little less conventional with, mouthpiece choices and horn choices than many people. I mean, I'll pick up an E-flat trumpet because it just makes things so much easier and then I can put a bigger mouthpiece in. So things like that that you wouldn't normally think of a commercial you know, lead-type trumpet player doing. Welcome to the middle of the episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you with the support of Messina Covers. They offer some standard and custom designs of trumpet bags, mouthpiece pouches, and more. And their customer service is excellent. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.com.
www.thepeopleshow.net. And now, back to the interview. You know, I, you talk about this, and, uh, I, you know, the power of uh, when somebody makes a statement at certain points in your life, the power of that statement to resonate and stick with you. And it, specifically, there was a, a player that I worked with not all that long ago who was like, man, if you can't do everything on one trumpet and one mouthpiece, you're doing stuff wrong. And, Ooh. you know, it was somebody that I had respected up to that point and not after that point. Uh, because I realized that, you know what, uh, it, it's like thinking about a pro golfer, you know, they don't, they don't walk onto the, the course with one club, you know, they've got the right club for the right shot. You got to change, you know, you can't swing the same hammer at, at every single nail, right? right. You see, and so it, I remembered that, uh, Man, it made me feel horrible. It made me feel guilty that I was, you know, switching equipment. But I just thought, you shouldn't you use the right thing to get the job done? And uh, yeah, exactly. I think. Yeah, um, but there's still so many people out there. I think that are just like, you got to do it on on one piece, or you're not you're not a real man, kind of thing. Well, <laughs> hooey on them. I think that's changing a little bit. I think it's changing. Um, when I, uh, I mean, I know players that can play extremely well on one horn and one mouthpiece i know and, and i guess it's kind of a one size fits all when you start looking at the body types of a lot of trumpet players it makes sense that they'd have that leverage but not everybody has that leverage with your teeth and your oral cavity your tongue your you know your weight all of those things play into these things even even the side you know if you start i i can't remember when i first noticed this but it was i mean it's probably a little after college, I started looking at all the great players that I loved, and those they were bigger guys, and they had bigger heads, and they had big tongues and stuff. So um, it, was, it was at that point that I realized we're not, we're not all the same, you know, and it's not one size fits all. So um, and the other thing that comes to my mind is, like, I'm terrible of starting a project in the house and, you know, working on something and needing a hammer or a screwdriver or something, and I'll forget something inevitably. And so I'll use the back of the screwdriver as a hammer, you know, and, 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 right. And, or you use a, a flat head and you kind of turn it sideways because you really needed a Phillips head, you know, so those kind of things, but yet we would, we would say, well, you're not a very good craftsman. You, you know, hire somebody real. And, and so it's the same thing with equipment. Why would, even if you can play things on, on a mouthpiece or horn, why would you use that for this other job, for this other task? And so it all kind of starts breaking down. To, to me, the idea breaks down when you start using those analogies. I mean, I think you really need to, if you want to sound like an incredible lead player, you're going to want more efficient equipment. If you're going to really want to sound like an orchestral player, you're going to want bigger equipment to get more volume in your sound, to get more depth, to get more overtones. And so um, yeah, the the whole compromising thing and just doing everything on one, one mouthpiece, it just doesn't work for what I do, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, with the, with, uh, the development of your mouthpiece line, company rather, sorry, Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. where did you start? Were you altering, uh, existing mouthpieces or did you, do you have a model in mind and start from a blank? How, how'd that evolve? 
uh, it evolved by me spending like 20 grand over the course of 10 years on mouthpieces. You know, just, I'd try this, I'd try that. Okay, that didn't work. Hey, that, that didn't work for this, but it was really cool for this over here, and I didn't think of that. And so I, I, I started seeing commonalities of, of where people feel, you know, where does somebody feel an inner diameter? Do they feel the actual inner diameter? Do they feel the high point or do they feel the outside of the mouthpiece? I mean, we're, it's so complicated and everybody's a little bit different. That's why numbers can help you get close to finding a good mouthpiece, but they, you don't do everything just by numbers because feel is, is going to be the big thing. And when you're cramming it into your face, it's going to feel differently because everybody's teeth and lips are, you know, different levels, levels of softness or hardness, or, you know, that, and I can't think of a, the right word. Viscosity is not the right word, but, um, yeah. And so, so we're all different. And so how, how our chops squish in the same size mouthpiece, you know, it'll vary from person to person and it'll vary if, if you had a four hour Latin gig the night before until 2 a.m., mm-hmm. it's going to be different. So I think that's when I, I started really just going down that road of, of like, well, I need something to make me sound like this today. And, and I don't mean to say that I play a, a gazillion mouthpieces. I really don't. I have, you know, two commercial models that I primarily play. And, and two classical models that I primarily play. Mm-hmm. But um, people, people are always thinking, I need to keep the same inner diameter. I need to keep the same rim, which was my prevalent thought for most of my process because that's what teachers had told me. But I realized that, no, there's other things that are at play here. There's that drill size. There's the, uh, there's the backboard shape. And I find those are more important to keep consistent throughout your switching than a rim, um, oddly enough, and or a cup. So do you have the equipment to uh, to make your own mouthpieces, or where do you go for no, that? No, I'm terrible at all that kind of stuff. No, I I have them made here in the U.S., and, and, uh, and uh, somebody helps me do that, and they're, they're fantastic. Um, but I, 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 if if I was going to do that, I would end up just continue having to be just a mouthpiece maker because it's a, it's a long learning curve, and it takes you know a lot of time and effort to get good at that 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 whole process. Well, I know Carl Hammond up in Chicago. Uh, you know, I've been to his shop mm-hmm. a number of times, and and of course he's you know I I think he's spectacular. He's and and the ability to uh, to handcraft those mouthpieces and the consistency. Mm-hmm. It, it, obviously I'm giving a huge shout out to <laughs> Carl in Hammond design. On no, this, that's but... great. I mean, I love Carl. He's, he was one, uh, you know, uh, early on, I actually approached him and talked to him about it when he was first kind of getting started on his own. And he was doing his own thing at that time, but he, he's a really easygoing guy. That's very easy to work with. And, you know, you can come out with something that you like for sure from Carl. My, 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 my mouthpieces are a lot different. You know, my thought process of, of, of what I want as far as efficiency um, and sound is, is a little bit different. But, yeah, he's a wonderful guy. Well, you know, and I, I brought him up really because of what you were saying about, you know, if you're going to do mouthpieces, it's, it's like that's all you got to do. 
you know that's yeah. and and he's uh although he is a, a firefighter uh, as well but uh yeah i i can really? see where Actually that would didn't know that yeah yeah um uh i couldn't tell you if it's it's a full-time gig but you, you'd have to ask him but um how interesting yeah. So, um, well, let's let's promote uh, your mouthpieces. If people want to know where to go to find this sort of thing, what uh, what's a good web address for that? It's uh, it's patrickmouthpieces.com. Couldn't you make that easier? And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> <I> mean, could... <laughs> yeah, I'm well, just kidding. I mean, obviously, yeah. that's, no, that's... <laughs> man, it's, I, I've made so much in life complicated already. You think you think I'd have a really complicated web address, but no. Hopefully people can can remember that and find it. And um, yeah, I've, I've my approach has really been to say you're going to have to probably play different mouthpieces. And the ability to switch uh, all of my backboards, except for I have a classical plus backboard that is um, that's really a different shape. But um, my commercial backboard or my Z backboard that kind of crosses um, this kind of medium in between, and then my classical backboard, they're all the same shape. And this came about by when we were when we were making the line, I was taking mouthpieces that I played on that were all radically different, but I had figured out what worked for me to switch, switch back and forth from. So we made a tool for each backboard, and we're, we're doing this. And then when we were done with that process, we, we found out that all of my backboards from totally different makers were identical in um, in their in the way they were shaped. Now they were different sizes, but they were identical as far as taper, which I thought was really interesting. And then you looked at, at the drill sizes and they only varied like one size, you know, 27, 28. So well um I want to back up just a little bit, back to something you mentioned at the very beginning. And, you know, it was uh, how you just put these albums on and were listening to Maynard and Doc. Mm -hmm. uh, you got a chance to play with Maynard. Um, mm -hmm. What about some of the others that you had listened to, those that had shaped your early playing? Did you ever get a chance to share the stage with any of the others? Um, I can't even think. Uh, I mean, I've shared the stage with Doc. Uh, many times, and that that was just a dream come true. Just you know, it, it's funny because you'll make a stupid mistake if you do something more than one night in a row with these players because you're listening to them, and you get caught up in what they're doing, and you'll miss an entrance. I guarantee it. When you're playing with a, a childhood hero, um, I got to when I'm when I was growing up, I was playing along with all sorts of albums and. So when I moved to town and started working with the players that I worked with, um, Mike Haynes, Jeff Bailey, Chris McDonald, Barry Green, Mark Douthat, Sam Levine, just all of these fantastic players, um, I realized, and, and I didn't put it together earlier, but I realized I'd been playing along with albums that they'd played on for 15 years. Um, so I was playing along with people that I was going to end up playing with. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Don Sheffield was another trumpet player that I had. I'd, he, he put out a solo album, um, and I played those solos in church and things like that. And here I, I started playing live jobs, and it, and I didn't even put it together until we'd known each other for over a year that it was the same guy. This was the guy that I'd 
played all of his, his his albums and kind of listened to the way he sounded and tried to copy it and stylistically and sound wise and uh, I got to play with Gary Grant on um, some sessions that Jerry Hay did so it was Gary Grant and um, I'm trying to think Phil Reichenbach and Dan Higgins um, and that was that was a dream come true and and it was amazing and these uh, these guys I can't I can't tell you how fantastic these players are um, I don't know if the listeners know all those names you know because they're a little bit further back you know? oh, well some of those um, some of those I mean obviously Gary and Reichenbach you know I mean those those are names that uh, I think still resonate with a lot of people if they're familiar with uh, the studio scene out out west yeah so it, it's just playing with those guys is, was just fantastic it's it's um, and again Every time you play with those types of players, it, it pulls your ear to a different thing. It may make you play differently. Um, it, it, taking lessons from Bill Adam, I, I didn't realize until, you know, well into the lessons and kind of afterwards, after I'd, I hadn't taken lessons from him, I realized that he would kind of emulate my sound and then change his sound, which pulled my sound along. It changed physically what I was doing. And I've noticed that when I play with great players that have uh, different attributes in their playing than I do, I'll end up start, I'll, I'll change what I'm doing and start sounding more like them. Um, so that's, that's all the power of the ear of what, you know, how that can change what you're doing physically. It, it can't be overstated. It really yeah. can't. So let's jump to today then who who do you listen to who inspires you and i guess it doesn't have to be a trumpet player either but you know who's uh who's got your ear um well i have probably like eighteen thousand songs on shuffle on my phone <laughs> um well let's go through all of them and, shall we <laughs> <laughs> and so i i ran you know if something doesn't resonate with me right then i'll just fast forward it but uh you know if it if it lands on maynard I always stop and listen to that cut. Um, if it lands on Doc, I'm always listening to it. If it lands on Arturo, I'm listening to it. Um, if it lands on, you know, something that Chicago Symphony did or or uh, Phil Smith played, you know, I'm I'm listening to those guys. Um, so I, it, it's, I guess right now my favorite guy to listen to is is maybe Till Broner. Um, I love his his sound and, and his playing and but I I mean it, it, it literally I just leave everything on shuffle and I try to just hear random random things I'm uh, I love listening to Brian McDonald play lead I think he's a fantastic lead player uh, I think he's got all the right right colors and, and things sparkle in his sound but yet he his pitch center you know if he if he hangs over or does something lead trumpet-esque it's it's intentional and it's not him being sloppy so i i i gravitate i don't gravitate towards players that play out of tune i don't gravitate towards players that that are sloppy you know if if something is done i want it to be intentional that this is what they were hearing in their head or singing in their mind while they were playing i want that that to come across so uh if something else comes on that that has the other i i do fast forward that 
Well, I mean, that what you just said makes perfect sense, especially if you're in the studio all the time. You want to play in tune. You want to play in time. Right. <coughs> pardon me. You don't want to be sloppy. Um, you know, I, I even think, <coughs> pardon me, there's an edit point right there. Uh, you know, no, I even think about, I've had it all the way through. <laughs> yeah, but the, the first time I ever got into a recording studio, uh, you know, I guess I could, I guess I could talk about, you know, that being uh, the 90% terrifying. Uh, mm-hmm. But one thing I learned, you know, I thought my time was good. And it was also, I think the first time I ever played with a major symphony, I thought my time was good mm-hmm. until I sat there and I'm like, oh, you know, I got some I got some things yeah. to work on because even working with a metronome and a tuner is not going to tell you what you need to do uh, until you're you have to really make sure that every every uh, every phrase is perfect at the beginning and at the end. And that, you know, the intonation. Uh, well, you know, I'm preaching to the choir on this, but you you know what I'm talking about, right? It's uh, well, it, it, it does. It's It's like the biggest spotlight in every corner of a dark room it just exposes any any um anything that's not up to par anything in your plane that is not stellar it shows you know and and so uh in many ways it's really most of the time it's not okay to to go in the control room and listen but sometimes it is um and you kind of figure out when it is and when it isn't and you can learn a lot just by going back because we all have our idea of what we're doing when we're playing. And, uh, and then you go in the control room and you hear something that you're doing. And I'm like, yuck. I didn't realize I was doing that. And, and the, the biggest thing when I first started was vibrato. You know, I had this, I, I just had, I would either have a really kind of fast French classical vibrato going on, or I'd have like a, a wide lead trumpet kind of vibrato going on and like, and nobody else was feeling it. I'm like, Oh my word. So, and you don't realize you're doing it and then you have to focus on not doing it. Um, but your perception of what you're doing, it, it just, it shines a light on, on every, the reality of what you're doing all the time. And it's, it's, a, that's a, that's a tough lesson to learn of like, man, I really thought I sounded better than that. But you don't, you know, you realize, okay, there's a lot of things here that need attention. But again, that goes back to your ears. If you're, if you can't perceive that with your ears, then, then maybe you're not going to do as well. So the ears are uh, the, the most important thing to, to be able to pull you along and to have a continued career in music. And it sounds so stupid. I'm sure that everybody said that, but to the depth of like when you're listening to music, um, personally, if there's music on and other people are talking or something, I, I really can't have background music on. I either I have to turn it off. I because I'm I'm practicing. If music is on, I'm practicing. I'm thinking of it in my head. I'm learning stuff right then. I'm practicing, and so it, it um, which drives people around me nuts, and family included. They're like, "Well, can we just have some music on?" I'm like, "No, <laughs> we can't." Yeah. Yeah. So I want to back up uh, a little bit more. Uh, just maybe one final thing. <clears throat> um, sure. Pardon me. Um, mm-hmm. You were you were talking about uh, maybe some really uh, not rough or tough days, but abusive days in the studio, or let's say you come off a you know, a really a really hard gig. Take, 
Uh, what do you say do? that one more time? I couldn't, I couldn't quite hear what you said. I'm, I apologize. Oh, no worries. Um, so let's say you come off a really tough gig. What are you doing to balance that? Uh, you know, do you, do you go back to Concone or, uh, you know, the Chickowitz flow studies? What do you use to, to help balance those days? Um, that's it. I have found for me that every morning I need to wake up and, and do physical exercise, just get blood flowing because I, you know, there's a, I have a, a lot of friends that play trumpet, uh, really well and they, their chops don't seem to swell very much. Mine do. I'm, I'm a pretty physical player. I do use, um, uh, some, I mean, relatively, if I get, if I get up over high G, I'm using a decent amount of pressure. I'm not a no pressure guy. I wish I could be, you know, I've, I've watched pictures. I watch uh, videos of Derek Watkins and people like that. And it's like, how did he do that? You know, but that's not me. I mean, I, that's not the way I'm set up. And so I'm pretty physical. And so I need to exercise to get blood flowing and to, to, to deal with that. And then I need to warm up and my warm up is not super long. It's five, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It's uh, if I know that my chops are super banged up, I will actually wake up earlier, exercise, warm up, leave a half an hour off, then warm up again, and I will actually warm up as many times as it takes to to get my chops feeling like they're going to be consistent. Sometimes that's two or three times, and I usually know the night before if it's going to be one of those days, so I'll have to wake up pretty early. Um, after after a full day of doing that, I I tend to go. I tend to play on a, a kind of a medium big mouthpiece, and just play softly. And when I can make make things respond up to like a high E softly, without exerting myself and without working really hard, then I know that probably the next morning I'm going to be able to wake up and play decent. Um, so there is a little bit of warm up, warm down kind of routine, um, just general exercise that's not even to keep myself in shape as much as to make sure that I can play trumpet. Um, um, just getting blood flowing around your whole body. So, um, not, and that just, it seems to affect my chops in a good way, but that's, that's a good question because, uh, you know, there are a lot of days that, you know, I'll end up playing 9, 10, 11 hours, and it'll be days in a row, you know, and weeks in a row of that kind of playing. And it's not necessarily always really hard, but it's just a lot of playing. And so, um, yeah. Well, <clears throat> so what I've learned, and maybe others have learned, is uh, your studio guy can play any part. Your symphony guy, your uh, road guy, your uh, an entrepreneur. Uh, you teach. Um, <laughs> I mean, you, you kind of do a lot of stuff, and uh, you know, and not not that you just do it all, but you do it all uh, obviously exceptionally well. Um, you know, I I look at this this list on uh, uh, the resume that you sent that's got everything listed that you've been a part of, and it's like, man, Steve, I've heard you play like a thousand times already. You know, I I didn't realize uh, a lot of the stuff. And even my kids have heard you play, you know, for on some of the stuff you'd listed here. But, um, you know, uh, you're a tough guy to get a hold of. I'm really glad that we finally were able to connect 
and uh, and chat a little bit. And uh, I I'm really grateful for your time. Uh, I'm, well, I'm I'm flattered that you would even ask. Honestly, um, I appreciate that, and it's it's so great talking to you and and finding out you know the mutual friends and and people that we know and 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 your love and your heart for for teaching and for and passion for playing. It's it's great to just get another trumpet player geek friend you know yeah. <laughs> we are we're all uh we're all in this together right uh yeah so. for sure well you know if you're ever through indianapolis uh i would hope that you'd give me a call and uh i, I may knock on your door in nashville someday but uh i'll give I you i hope you up. do i really do <laughs> i hope you i so. hope you come visit yeah yeah you know it sounds like if i'm going to schedule a lesson it'll have to be like 3 a.m right that's kind of your only uh... (laughs) no it'll be it'll be the lesson will be you just come to whatever studio i'm in and then just come hang out and meet the guys and hear what we're doing and then the lesson will be using your ears like what we were talking about exactly (laughs) well steve again thank you so much um i i really appreciate appreciate this and uh um okay so i'm going to end the recording right there um but seriously, uh, thanks for your time. I know you're busy, and uh, carving out this little bit uh, for me is, uh, it's, well, you know, you say, uh, I can't remember what you said, but, you know, that I would think of you, but uh, you're kind of a big deal, you know? It's, <laughs> that's, that's uh, I think we well, give ourselves I, I, credit on a lot of things, but uh, there are I a lot of people. I appreciate that. I, I yeah. definitely don't think of myself like that. I just think of myself doing the work, and, but I appreciate, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very humbled by anybody thinking that. Now, hopefully, that was well spoken enough that it'll it'll work okay as a, a podcast. Oh, I, hate, I think it was I terrific. Talking. No, it was it so, was fantastic. And I'm serious about you know if there's a chance that you could come to Nashville, I'd, I'd love to meet you in person and, and hang and. Yeah. Um, you'll I'll, have to you'll have to show me where the, the hot chicken. Guy. Uh, you know the Nashville hot chicken. I guess that's the thing these days, right? I can show you, but I can't eat it before oh. playing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I've, I can't. I've heard uh, it's too hot and it's too greasy. Yeah. So now here is a story that I'll tell you that we were playing a show, and the contractor and trombone player um, ate hot chicken right before the show, before we were doing it, and it was a Broadway show. And all of a sudden, and and the way the stage was set up. We were part of the show, but we were behind a curtain, and he actually had to jump down off of a riser like six feet, and he just like went running. Like we had some rests. He went running. <laughs> we all knew that he had oh. hot chicken before <laughs> the show, and so everybody in the band was texting him like, are you coming back? Are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> totally messing with him. Oh. He did not miss a note. He didn't. He he got back in time for his next his next entrance. Oh, that's great, man. <laughs> so, all right. Well, so, so noted. You know, I'll, I'll uh, maybe I'll just look at the hot chicken and, and enjoy it that way. So, <laughs> so all right. Well, listen uh, again. Thank you, and uh, I wish you the best. Thank you. All right. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Steve. Bye. 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 So, How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm intrigued. You know, you texted back. I'm like, you know, and it's funny. It's that way. I think with everybody, it's like, oh man, I should have told about, you know, 
<laughs> stuff doesn't come you know, to this right away. You know away. what this is like? It's like playing. It's like being like a classical or a lead player that solos, plays jazz every now and then, and then is pretty good. But you never get out exactly what you hear in your mind, and then later you're like, "Oh, I should have played that over that." Right, right. <laughs> Same thing. Yeah. So, so we'll consider this bonus um, content. You know, uh, sure. If, if people, and if, if you if you hear anything else when you're editing this, if you're like, "Oh man, let me expound on that or something," you know, just call me and we'll edit sure. it or whatever. Because sure. I'm like, "Oh, did I sound like such a no, 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 or whatever?" So. No. Anyway, yeah. So yeah, I'm kind of curious. Sure. Uh, you know, you have already uh, done some more recording today. Are you are you close to the studio that you normally work in, or studios that you work in? No, I actually i i if that's why I didn't text you back so early enough is because um I, I was uh I was like if I get in my car and hurry I'm gonna miss a bunch of traffic. So I knew I had to deal with my glasses down by where close to where I live at this mall. So. Yeah, I, I split and and uh, but yeah, that was that was actually a really fun session. Yeah, so um, I'm gonna have to run these uh, some of these things by my kids and say, okay, have you seen this? And they'll be like, yeah, and then I'll say, guess who I talked to today? You know, uh, and, and it might be like, yeah, so what? <laughs> you know, uh, like we're if talking it's about earlier. Like my family, it'll be like, that's great, Dad. Yeah, that's, that's really nice. Yeah, when's dinner? No, <laughs> I had a really hard day with math. Okay, sorry. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, so, you know who you sound like? You sound a lot like Michael Lawrence. Have you have you spoken with him or ever met him? Uh, who? What's the name? Michael Lawrence. Mike Arndt. Oh, he's, yeah, uh, of course. We've worked together a few times. Yeah. Your actual voice, you, you sound a lot like him, and your mannerisms. I mean, are you, you're from, where are you from originally? Well, you're not going to believe it. I'm actually from Kentucky. But I moved okay. to Indiana about 30 years ago, 1988, and uh, I almost immediately lost any accent uh, that I may have had. Well, I'm from Chicago area, and I think I think Mike spent a decent amount of time up in Chicago as uh-huh. well. Uh, it's so funny you, you it. say uh, – I, I thought you were going to say Tom Hanks because quite often that's what I get. I, I get that I sound really? like Tom Hanks, yeah. And then I, you know, I do yeah, that. There's no crying in baseball too. kind of thing. And, and of course, that's been a really dated reference. So <laughs> some people don't get yeah. that one anymore. But No, I get it. I, uh, and actually, now that you say that, I, I totally hear that as well. But you, you, you sound a, a lot like Mike. It's funny. Yeah. Um, well, maybe uh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll you... contact him and, you know, maybe we'll do Halloween next year. We'll, we'll go as each other. Um, you know, that's, that's <laughs> funny. Um Speaking of um, Halloween, uh, of years ago at MTSU, which is where Mike teaches, um, these I had uh, a couple of students that took from me, but they were they were part of Michael Arndt's studio. They just came to see me because I was close, and um, and they they wore they went for Halloween and they wore these these things around their neck. And somebody said, "What are you? What are you? What are you dressed up as?" And they're like, "We're Steve Patrick and Mike Haynes. And they nobody got it except for we had, you know, the Lorenzo seal around your neck. I tore that plane, and so had Mike. And so we wore these like, I think they were camp neoprene extra large, el- you know, like elbow braces <laughs> for football players. And <laughs> something where it was really weird, stupid, obscure reference, but." Yeah, well, 
nobody yeah. right nobody let else me, would have gotten that right <laughs> no no yeah. nobody would have gotten it but let me know when you're recording and, and we'll, we'll talk about this or uh, well, I've, I've been recording the whole time so uh oh, okay it, good yeah, it's like like i said you. earlier you know the lights on man you don't want to miss <laughs> you don't want to miss no yeah, the yeah good stuff exactly. so yeah so uh well what you got uh so I, I thought of this when you asked me about um, any any kind of funny stories or anything, and, and and most of the time, you know, you're pretty focused and you're not messing around a whole lot on a session. Maybe sometimes on an artist session, but not not an orchestral session a whole lot, except for when everything stops. But um, there's this there there's a Catholic church that I play with a decent amount, and. Every time, you know, it's more stories than actually something funny, although there's a couple funny stories, and some of them are kind of disturbing as well. Um, but the, the first time I ever went, uh, was it was a, a vigil mass where it's really dark, and they don't have the lights on, and it starts at, you know, when it's pitch black already. It's like 9 o'clock starting time. But um, the organist said, you know, just get there. Um when 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 you can because you've got an hour where you won't be playing so just show up when the service is supposed to start so i showed up and the door is locked and so i went around to another door finally i i come in the sanctuary on a side door of the sanctuary and i have two marcus bona quad cases with me and i'm walking in and i'm all in black and i'm thinking man this is really weird it's it's really cold the parking lot is full, but it's pitch black. And I'm 10, 15 steps into the church before I realize it's packed. Oh. Like, the church is packed. <laughs> it's pitch black. I'm, like, ready to trip. I don't know where I'm going. It's my first gig at this church. And all of these musicians, they have, like, 10 musicians on stage. Um, and, of course, I have to, like, walk around with flowers. And I've got one on my shoulder and one as the backpack straps and i'm walking and i'm trying to like you know do lunges squatting trying to get <laughs> underneath you know the you know the stands right and the, this, the lady that's in charge of music is yelling at me the whole time oh, no. but there's people in there in in the pews and i guess they're re reflecting it was a it was an easter vigil so it's kind of the time where they're they're between the grave and the resurrection of Christ is what they're celebrating right then. So it's, it's really somber. And she's yelling at me in a whisper. This is why I told people that they had to be here at this time. And uh, it's all news to me. That's not what I was told. But So that's the first recollection of, of this, this church. But then um, there's another service that I do there. And it's the same kind of thing. It's pitch black outside. And inside the, the the sanctuary, and all of a sudden, and it's completely silent. And all of a sudden, this lady lets out a bloody curdling scream, like the kind that would make you pee your pants. It's that scary and so loud. And it's a stone church, so it reverberates, and it's big. It's this place holds a couple thousand people, and it's all you can hear. It was high pitched. It was straight out of a horror movie, and. Um, she screams and then says, help him. Somebody please help him. And I guess somebody had passed out in the parking lot and fallen. And I mean, it was serious, but it was, it was just the timing. But the best story from this, from this church um, 
and I got a couple more, but the best one, and these all happen at the exact same church. Um, they're, they have, um, they have like this bonfire kind of pit outside and they're, they're reading scripture and, and the priest is reading scripture and they're talking and it's getting more crowded and more crowded because more and more people are coming into this area where they do this part of the service before they go inside. And, um, again, it's an Easter vigil. Um, so they do part of the service outside, then they come inside and it's pitch black and then it, then it, you know, the lights come on and then it's all upbeat and happy. Um, right. Representing the resurrection. So, um, in this, this, and all the ladies are all grown up and, you know, big hair, big makeup, the whole deal, Easter kind of stuff. And so, um, they have, they keep on pushing people back. And this one lady has big hair and a lot of hairspray. You can tell because her hair is really tall and she keeps on getting pushed back and there's, there's torches all around this area. And further and further pushed back until she got close to one of these torches, and her whole oh, no. hair, no. all her hair, started on fire. It was oh. like a, a straight-up bonfire on top of her head. Oh no! And she starts screaming and running around in circles. And finally, somebody she she gets on the ground, and people are stomping her hair. So they stomp her hair out. The fire goes out, and she runs in the parking lot. You know. You know, I don't think she's ever come again. It was a pretty bad experience for her. But um, let's see. There's there's the time at the same church where the organist gave music to people. She's in the balcony, and I was up there with her. And um, then the people are on stage um, with the piano and other musicians down there, like harps and harp and singer and some other instrumentalists. But the music that she had given them and the music that we had were in two different keys. <laughs> so, and but not too far, just like a, a half step apart yeah, or maybe perfect. one full step. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and and I told her after I heard what was going on, you know, I'm, I I go down to her and I, and I stop playing and I'm like, we're in two different keys. She goes, uh, they're just going to have to go with us. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> so she just keeps playing. So I started playing, and they did not go with us. So the whole, the whole, uh, <laughs> the whole song was in two different keys. <laughs> did anybody um, comment on that afterwards? Oh well, all the musicians did, obviously. <laughs> um, you know, other people are like something sounded a little funny. <laughs> you could you could have blamed it on the distance, right? Hey, we were in tune. It's just the you know perceived right. Distance. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, there was that. But yeah, this is this church is a, it's it's a very interesting place to play because uh, when I first started playing there, the keyboard player would always be getting new instructions. So he'd turn around and say, literally seconds before I would play, he'd be like, "This down a minor third. This is up. You know, down a fourth. This is up a second. You know, whatever it would be." And I would always have my B flat, C, E flat. And just be ready for anything. And and then the, the best thing is from the uh, the person really kind of in charge of the whole thing would come back and say, and I'd be sight reading this and transposing, but she'd be like, I don't want you to play the melody, play discants, play other stuff over it. And so there it was it's a it's a very uh, very interesting place to play. And in fact, um, 
it got back to me because I, I charge a decent chunk when I when I do jobs like that, and um, uh, it got back to me that they had that they had posted a Craigslist post for trumpet players looking for trumpet players to play at a cheaper rate, and uh, <laughs> that didn't go well. I think it, they might have done one like that, and then they they started calling me again. But anyway, yeah, that's my those. It's funny that it's it, it's all kind of at, yeah. at one place. Yeah, you've got to look forward to getting that that email or that call from that church, right? You've you you're now it's you're conditioned. Pretty funny. I mean, yes, and I mean, I'm forgetting probably ten more stories, <laughs> but it, it's always something, uh, and some that I I probably shouldn't share. On I probably shared too much already. No, no, that's great, man. Well, and you know, and you but, feel yeah, guilty for laughing at a couple of those, you know, because like the lady's hair on fire. But I mean, you can't help but chuckle a little bit. I mean, it's. You know, it's right. it's I mean, ripe it's, well, for it's awful, you know what's going to happen. I mean, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, it's like they, if it was in a movie, you'd be laughing. But it, um, yeah, it's and my family always looks forward to their every single you know if we have lunch afterwards, they're like, okay, tell us the story <laughs> from this week. You know, yeah, um, yeah. So I thought I'd throw that in. Well, I've got one for you as you're telling me, and I, I've told this one a few times around here. This is a local church here in Indy. Uh, mm-hmm. A few years back, there was a uh, philanthropist, uh, some lady who donated all kinds of money to the arts, and uh, she passed away, and the the widower had requested a brass quintet play at the memorial service. And mm-hmm. so we went, and we set up, we rehearsed, and we get into, and the place is packed. I mean, the, the, the memorial service in this church, the, the place is absolutely packed. And there's all kinds of different music, uh, gospel, pop, um, you know, you name it, traditional. And uh, in the middle of the service, somebody comes back. The musicians had left the platform, and uh, we're back in the room waiting for the end of the service. Somebody comes back and says, the uh, the widower has requested trumpet voluntary for uh, the recessional, you know, the end of the, the, end of the sermon, um, the ceremony, I suppose it was. Uh, Memorial service. There we are. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, I saw I didn't have my piccolo. Uh, the other trumpet player had his. He goes, yeah, no problem. You know, we'll play that. And uh, they said, yeah, great, because the uh, the widower wants to uh, pick her up and walk back down the aisle, just like when they got married. You know, he wants to carry her out. And all of a sudden, I just am mortified, imagining that he's going to pick her pick her up out of the casket and process. <laughs> out of the church. And so for the next 30 minutes, I'm just sitting there thinking, no, this cannot happen. This, this has got to be wrong on so many <laughs> levels and not realizing until much later, of course, that she had been cremated and, and she's in an urn. And, right. you know, of course at that point it's too late because it, and it just became hysterical. Uh, at that point, you know, I, I couldn't stop laughing to myself. You were holding a cadaver exactly you know (laughs) it's like there's got to be some sort of statute that's going to prevent this from happening but you know i just thought uh it was the first place my mind went you know when somebody said he's going to pick her up and walk out well that's that's but thank goodness that that is not the case (laughs) it was it was just the urn but um that that might be the only story i can tell uh you know from a from a church gig i mean you know we've all had those gigs that have gone wrong yeah you, uh, yeah and you have to be careful about them because you know um 
the circle of, of yeah. making a living is pretty small. <laughs> right, right. So, but uh, well, well, I you know I'm I'm thrilled. I'm I am. I'm going to put this right back in. I had already uploaded uh, the interview from earlier today. Uploaded it into. Uh, I use Audacity to edit everything. So. I'm going to upload yeah. this and uh, and splice it in, but uh, no, I, I really appreciate you calling back with uh, uh, with this. And uh, if somebody's hair catches on fire at a church job, you got That's got to be <laughs> somewhere in a podcast, exactly. And I'll tell you, as far as edit points, you know, you can you can get out. You don't you don't want to share. This didn't happen to me, but I got to tell you, just it, you know, while we're sharing stories, because this is kind of long winded and and. I heard it from somebody else, so it's it's not going to be well, you know, framed and or told by me. But just you should just hear the story. Is there's this guy, and I think I want to say he was in either uh, Ireland, maybe Ireland, but it, it was a, it was a guy that worked at a Catholic church in Ireland or Scotland, and uh, he he sang at all of the, the services. I think he sang and played piano. So all of the you know, and, you know, you have the ritual, you know, all the rites um, for for the masses. And so, you you know, a wedding is a mass, a, a funeral is a mass, all of those things. And so this this guy was known to be a practical joker. And he, he was getting married, and um, so he got married, and they walked down the aisle and everything. There was no no big jokes in the wedding. It was pretty straightforward. And and this actually, now that I'm telling this story, it's not a funny story. It's actually really terrible and sad. But um, <laughs> so they get married, and the guy's new father-in-law is is uh, uh, a doctor. Uh, I don't know what type, but he's like a you know a regular kind of B flat doctor. Um, and so they get married there at the reception, and the groom starts laughing at something, and he he starts choking okay so he's choking and choking and he's he's trying to get somebody to help him and everybody's laughing at him because he's such a jokester that they all think that he's messing around so he dies you know he dies at his wedding reception and everybody still thinks it's a joke you know he's hauled off they take him so they do the funeral a couple of days later, and you know he's the, the reason that I heard about it is because this musician has to sing all of the same songs that they sing at the wedding. Everybody's wearing the stuff that they wore at the wedding for the funeral. It's like three days later, and the the father-in-law still thinks that there's a, you know that everybody still thinks that this is an elaborate joke, like one of the guys there. And so, you know, it's um, <laughs> they sang all the same stuff. She came down and is, is seated in her wedding dress at the funeral, all of this stuff. And it's not until, like, they're loading his body into the, the you know, vehicle to go away, the hearse, to, to go be buried, that, like, it's really dawning that this is real. Like, indeed, everybody, like, flipped out. Like, they had to put the, the – um, the father-in-law like on suicide watch he was beside himself because he had, he had let he could have totally saved his son-in-law's life i mean it was it was really bad 
that's not a that's not a good story for you. Not well, no, it, well, it, it might not be funny, but you know, it's uh, <laughs> if it's it's a lesson on don't cry wolf, right? You know, or, uh, yeah, I guess. Or, I mean, yeah, you'd think somebody even in that would have would have like noticed that this is probably real. But yeah, that's I mean, out of all of us bizarre stories that us as musicians hear and are a part of over the over the decades, that's got to be the most elaborate, weird, awful thing that has ever happened. So. Wow. Uh, <laughs> well, again, you know, you you don't want to laugh at that, but I think you laugh at the. Well, I want to say humanity. There's some humanity there, you know. So, I laughed but, because of the way it was told to me. I had no idea <laughs> where it was going, and I'm like, "Are you serious?" I told my family, and of course, my my sons were like, "Who usually have pretty dark humor?" I'm like, "Dad, that's 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 totally not funny, and that's not okay for you to tell." <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm like. So, <laughs> how old are your anyway. kids? Uh, one just turned twenty-one. One is close to twenty, and the other one is close to sixteen. Yeah, Two all... boys, and then my youngest is a girl. Wow! How about that? Very cool. Any musicians what out of those you? three? Um, the oldest, the two oldest played trumpet, and uh, they just they were they had other interests but they loved music and they liked trumpet. And, but my middle one, my, my second, second one down is a fantastic guitar player. He's so natural. He's got great ears, um, just incredible ears. And so he's, he's kind of like a shredder. Like he'll listen to, you know, um, Eddie Van Halen and that, and that kind of stuff. Um, trying to, my mind's going blank on all the, the guys that he listens to, but he's just really natural at that, and he, he just makes stuff up all the time, and then records it. It's pretty impressive. But he, uh, my eldest is going to be an aerospace engineer, and he's so he's working for Gulfstream, and he's going back and forth between rotations for a co-op with that. Uh, he's he's pretty smart, and the second one is they're all smart. They're all smarter than I am. The second one is becoming a pilot, so he's in his first year of college to become a professional pilot. And uh, and my dad was a pilot. My my father was a uh, pilot. And then um, uh, Air Force, Army, youngest, Navy. Uh... Uh, for United Airlines. Oh, for Airlines. Oh, I got straight, you. Okay. Straight into the airline industry. And then my youngest, I, I have no idea what she's going to do because she wants to sing and dance and act, and she's decent at all of those, and she's a great dancer, and she's super creative. But she started writing like books, and so she's. She's like, I want to do all these other things, but I want to be published. And I'm like, I read some of her stuff. It's great. So we'll see what she ends up doing. Um, um, yeah. Oh. So. Well, you know, uh, you know, I, I've got three boys. Uh, well, practically 10, 13, and, and 30. I, and, a, and then a three-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. Um, wow. All, That's the better part. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I had a practice wife. That's what I tell everybody. You know, I had a <laughs> practice wife there, but uh, uh, yeah. all all musically inclined. And you know, it's and my wife's a violinist, so you know, they all grew up in the house hearing music all the time. And uh, right, it's like you, even if even if they don't go into music, you know, they they do have a really good appreciation for for everything. You know, is, I think that's a big success right there. I really do because uh, I mean, my sons they listen. They are so varied in their listening, and they buy music and they enjoy music, 
and I, I just see them being such supporters of the arts and music, and it's, I think it's so incredible. I feel like a success as a dad musically with them just because they support and love music. So, Well, we'll get in the car, and, and uh, my piano playing 12-year-old, almost 13 here, uh, Dad, can we listen to List or Chopin? He'll name a piece. And then, you know, my, my 10-year-old's like, uh, um, hey, put on uh, Bohemian Rhapsody or Stairway to Heaven or, you know, what was mm-hmm. that? You know, pretty eclectic stuff. And then, you know, and then we get the Taylor Swift <laughs> request, you know, or whatever. But, <laughs> we um, get the Dirty Loops request in the yeah. Metallica, which Flash <laughs> playing guitar, you know. So, you know, and, and, and I like it, you know, because I, I just think a little bit of a little bit of everything is fine. It's, and a good music is good music, yeah. you know. That's that's how I look at it. If it's Exactly. Cool. All right. All right, man. Talk to you soon. Great talking to you. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you again for listening to today's interview. I hope you enjoyed your time here, and please come back for more interviews. Be sure to share the news of this podcast with friends and colleagues and give me a rating on whatever platform you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Messina Covers for co-sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget that you, too, can be a supporter. Check out how at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl. And one more reminder that you can sign up to receive news via email regarding new episodes, merchandise, and more by going to palmusic.net and clicking on the subscribe to newsletter link. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back for more great interviews.